Good afternoon. So good to see many of you today. If you have a Bible, please get ready to turn it to Psalm chapter 11. Psalm chapter 11. What do you do when the foundations of our society are destroyed? What do you do when the laws of this nation and the justice system of this nation no longer protects the welfare of its citizens, but rather propagates its self-interested political agenda? entirely abasing common sense, dismissing natural laws and antithetical to biblical truth? What do you do when everything you are supposed to trust and depend on around you are crumbling all around? In his book, Strange New World, the author Carl R. Truman writes these words in his introduction, and I quote, For many people, the Western world in which we now live has a profoundly confusing and often disturbing quality to it. Things once regarded as obvious and unassailable virtues have in recent years been subject to vigorous criticism and even in some cases come to seen by uh, many as more akin to vices. Indeed, it can seem as if things that almost everybody believed as unquestioned orthodoxy the day before yesterday, that marriage is to be between one man and one woman, for example, are now regarded as heresies advocated only by the dangerous lunatic fringe. Nor are the problems confined to the world out there. Often they manifest themselves most acutely and most painfully within families. Parents teaching their family traditional views of sex find themselves met with incomprehension by their own children who have absorbed far different views from the culture around them. What a parent considers to be a loving response to a child struggling with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria might be regarded by the child as hateful and bigoted. And this is as true within the church as it is within the wider society. The generational gap today is reflected not simply in fashion and music, but in the attitudes and beliefs about some of the most basic aspects of human existence. The result is often confusion and sometimes even heartbreak, as many of the most brutal engagements in the culture war are played out around the dinner table and at family gatherings. Carl R. Truman writes, Welcome to this strange new world. You may not like it, but it is where you live, and therefore it is important that you try to understand it. Again, the question for us this afternoon, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That is the central question of the psalmist in our passage today. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We're picking back up on our intermittent series, Summer in the Psalms, which we are studying the book of Psalms, which began last June, where each summer we hope to cover 10 Psalms for the next 14 years. And since we cover the first 10 chapters last year, we'll be covering chapters 11 through 20 this summer during the months of June, July, and August. And Lord willing, we will cover all 150 psalms by the year 2035. I pray many of us will be serving our Lord together, uh, should the Lord tarry and give us more years together. Amen? Amen? Last year, I encouraged all of us to get in the habit of reading through the entire book of psalms each summer, and I will do so again this year. So read 50 short chapters a month 
for June, July, and August. So if you start tomorrow on Monday and read about two to three chapters of Psalms on the weekdays alone, I calculated the weekdays alone, 20 to 30 days, two to three chapters, you'll be able to read all 150 Psalms in the summer, 50 chapters a month, June, July, August. Who's with me? Raise them high. Okay, look at the the people next to you who's raising their hand. Uh, Look at the people who are not raising their hands. May the Spirit give us conviction. (laughs) Anyways, to give you some context, as I shared last year as well, the book of Psalms is a collection of 150 ancient Hebrew lyrical poems, songs, and prayers spanning about a thousand years, written by various authors, mostly by King David. He wrote 73 of the Psalms out of 150. The book has a very unique design and message that you won't notice unless you read it entirely cover to cover. That's why I'm encouraging you to do that this summer. Read it all through, 50 chapters a month. The book is divided into five large sections. Book 1, from chapters 3 to 41. Book 2, chapters 42 to 72. Book 3, chapters 73 through 89. You don't actually have to write these down. I'm going to repeat it several times. Book 4, chapters 90 through 106. Book 5, chapters 107 through 145. And all of these chapters climaxes into the last five chapters, which are called Psalms of Praise. Each of the five psalms ending with the word hallelujah, calling readers to praise Yah or to praise God. Well, what is the book of Psalms calling God's people to praise Yah, praise God for? We see that the psalms of this book falls into two main categories, psalms of lament and psalms of praise. And these psalms teaches readers how we ought to properly respond, living in a world full of brokenness and pain and suffering and evil that is all around. And so in the midst of all such trials and sufferings, we ought to remember who God is. We ought to remember His faithfulness and His promises. And the book of Psalms is teaching us to hope ultimately, not in the things or the peoples or the princes of this world, but in the one true coming Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Amen? The Psalms is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. And the Psalms is the most quoted book by Jesus himself than any other book of the Bible. And I pray our study through it and your reading of it will draw you closer to Christ of the Psalms. Amen? In our Psalm this afternoon, in Psalm chapter 11, the author David is presented with the pressures of a dire situation in which he must choose either fear or faith. In such a crisis, David was faced with a choice. Should David listen to the counsel of the fearful ones or look to the king who is the faithful one? Many a times in David's life, he was forced to be a refugee. Twice he had to flee for safety from King Saul, who saw David as a threat to his throne. Once David had to flee for his life from his own son, Absalom, in his old age, as Absalom sought a coup. But here in this psalm, David doesn't flee though the pressures to do so are so great and so imminent, this psalm is neither a prayer nor a plea to God for help. In fact, this psalm is David's declaration of faith. It's David's theology of assurance and perseverance when the very grounds on which he stood gave way. Here, David's faithful answer to fearful advice, you're going to find out in these verses. So from our passage, Psalm 11, I want to share with you two truths 
Christians can cling to in crisis. Two truths Christians can cling to in crisis. Here's the outline in case you miss it. How can Christians be confident in crisis? Two truths. Point number one, the Lord is our refuge, verses 1 through 3. The Lord is our refuge, verses 1 through 3. And point number two, the Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness, verses 4 through 7. Brothers and sisters, I pray this message will encourage you and remind you of the reason why Christians can be confident, why you, if you profess to be a Christian, can be confident in faith when it seems our society has lost its footing and Christianity seems so outdated and far-fetched. Christ is in His holy temple. He is our refuge. And I pray for anyone who are here this afternoon who are not Christian, we welcome you. We thank you so much for being here and joining us for service today. If you also are wondering, how in the world will we make it through in light of all the political, societal, racial, financial, national, global instability, division, and uncertainties which are flooding our headlines, massive shootings and wars, and ongoing pandemic and rising gas prices, how will we make it? We pray that you will hear and come to know and trust in the one who sovereignly reigns over all today. Scripture says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. No one can topple Jesus off his throne. He will reign forever, and he invites you to trust him today. That's why you are here. That's why we've been praying for you, for you to be here this afternoon. And I guarantee that this is a word for you. So without further ado, let's turn now to our passage found on page 452 in the blue Bibles around you. If you are new to reading the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers. The little numbers are the verse numbers. So Psalm chapter 11, verses 1 through 7, we'll read the whole thing today. And as you listen, I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open throughout the entire duration of the passage and follow along as I read and preach to help you better retain these words and so that you won't be bored. And by the way, if you do not have a Bible to read at home, please take one of those blue Bibles with you as a gift from us to help you grow in studying God's Word. Psalm chapter 11, verses 1 through 7 says this. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous he loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. Amen. How can Christians be confident in crisis? Point number one, the Lord is our refuge. Amen? Look with me to verses one through three again. It says this, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? In the initial reading of this psalm, it seems, or it can be often read, that David is in conflict. 
that David is experiencing a tremendous crisis of faith, that David is tempted to flee, listening to the counsel of his advisors in the presence of imminent threat, that David should run to the mountains for safety. But note, the first words of this psalm, which David himself penned, which ought to shape the flow of this entire psalm. In the Lord I take refuge. There is no doubt about it in David's mind. There is no hesitation for compromise. There is no fear of deconstruction of faith here in this psalmist. When faced with an anguished choice, fight or flight, David's confidence is unabated. The psalm is a resolute declaration of dependence in the one who is the safest In the fury of fearful, fiery storms, in the Lord, I take refuge. This is not the first time David calls on God as his refuge. Psalm 2 verse 12, blessed are all who take refuge in him. David exhorted the blessing of God's refuge. From Psalm 5, 11, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. David declared the joy of God's refuge. From Psalm 7:1, O oh Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. David believed in the salvation of God's refuge. And here in Psalm 11, verse 1, David confides God's refuge is a bulwark against threatening death blows. And it won't be the last time, you see. David recalls the Lord our God as a refuge in times of trouble. In the forthcoming Psalms, David describes the Lord our refuge as a rock and a strong fortress in which the righteous run into it and are safe. Again, David says, in the Lord I take refuge. That is his determined resolve. Amen? The limited context of the Psalm does not tell us specifically of David's impending threat, what it was. But as I shared with you in the intro, David was one who was not unaware of the many dangerous threats that sought to destroy his life. So lest you think that his firm confidence in the Lord be mistaken as futile or even frivolous, meaningless, small, note what kinds of dangers David was facing. Now some interpreters reason that David's threat uh, is merely figurative, that the psalm is alluding to verbal persecution or slander that believers faced or that David was facing. Certainly it could be. Certainly it could be, but it was much more. Otherwise, why would David's counselors advise as they did? Look at verse 2. For behold, the wicked bend their bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. You see, the urgency and the intensity of David's threat must be understood. David describes his enemy as the wicked. They were evil and merciless foes. It says they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot. It means exactly that. In modern terms, they had their guns locked and loaded, aimed at David's head. It says they shoot in the dark like snipers hiding somewhere in the vicinity but unseen. They are undetected. They are aimed. They are ready to kill. So when David's advisors urge David to flee like a bird to your mountain, and you can tell that David is either recounting or more specifically quoting their counsel by the presence of the quotation marks around their advice, their counsel is not without warrant. The imminent and urgent danger was very present. 
to give us even a more clearer perspective of what David was experiencing. Look at the first part of verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, whatever defenses that David's army, that David's fortress, David's military prowess prevented and protected thus far, they were simply no longer available. They were no longer viable. They were no longer plausible. And the only reasonable option was to flee like a bird to the mountain for safety. The foundations of all that David had built were destroyed. The very grounds of David's visible security were pummeled. And in such a hopeless, helpless situation, what can the righteous do? Was the fearful, worryful, well-meaning, well-intended counsel of David's friends or advisors. There is nothing you can do, David. Flee. Run. It's the only way you can survive. I want to ask you this afternoon, have you ever faced similar crisis of faith when the foundations of your life, the things of this life that you value, that you treasure, that you cling to and hope in, your bank accounts, that promotion that you are supposed to get, that exam result, that medical diagnosis, that job interview, that potential dateable guy or gal disappointed you or rejected you, when your spouse or your children or your health or maybe your own willpower, your own faith, your spiritual disciplines, your strength, your mental health, your feelings, your emotions failed you over and over and over again, when the governments and the laws, the elected officials can't be trusted, when schools and jobs pressure you to conform to the patterns of this world, when culture and society no longer view your Christian faith to be respectable, honorable, or even acceptable, but rather judgmental and narrow and outdated, causing all of your foundations, all your expectations, all your hopes and dreams to crumble, what will you do? What will you do? What can you do? Let me tell you, the Bible is clear what people have done. Romans 3.23 says, all have fallen short. Isaiah 53.6 says, all of us have strayed away. Everyone, everyone, everyone has turned to his own way. They have fled to the mountains. They have hid away in their own bunkers, escaped to their own retreats, built up their own refuge. The survivalists literally and figuratively live off the grid. They isolate themselves to get away from a world that seems to be falling apart. They isolate themselves culturally. They withdraw emotionally. They stop caring for the world around them. Some people flee through nostalgia. They remember a time when the past was greater than the present, when the culture was supposedly less evil. One commentator says their hearts live in a photoshopped version of the past, often an airbrushed 19th century America. They imagine a golden age that never existed, a nation without slavery, trail of tears, the civil war, tuberculosis, smallpox, infant mortality, or the financial panics of 1819, 1837, 1857, 1873, 1893, 1910, the depression of 1920, the Great Depression from 1929 to 1933. The recession of 1937, 1949, 1953, 1958, 1960, 1969, 1973, 1980, early 1990s, early 2000s. The Great Recession, 
from 2007 to 2009, and I could mention more, just look it up. Financial panics, recession in America. History gives us a more consistent, more truer perspective, doesn't it? Not to mention, brothers and sisters, the Great War and World War II and Vietnam and Korea and Cold War and War on Terror, just to name a few, just to name some. And Christians have been tempted and succumbed to flee when the foundations of their faith were shaken. In fact, the recent Pew researches, which shows that Christianity is in sharp decline and further declining of churchgoers in the pandemic, show that so many so-called self-professing Christians are comfortable, comfortable fleeing when crisis come. So the all-important question for you and for me, what will you do? How will you answer that question? Can I cut to the chase and answer for you the right answer? Because there is a wrong answer. I just told you what the wrong answer was. It's the answer that people have been choosing for most of human history to seek their own escape, to forge their own paths of security and certainty, to flee from danger, to flee to man-made man caves, literally. But if the brave mother in Uvalde, Texas, who ran into the face of danger to save her own two sons into a school with an active shooter, breaking off restraints of the police, risking her own safety, even her own life serves as an example, serves as a reminder of our sacrificial substitute. May we rightly understand the question and also the answer that the psalmist poses. The question in the passage, listen carefully, listen carefully. The question in the passage is not, what can you do? The question is, what can the righteous do? Now, I know what I asked. I asked you, what will you do? I asked, what can you do? And I did that to force us to understand there is nothing you yourselves, we ourselves can do. Simply, there is nothing we can do. That's the point. But there's one thing we can do, perhaps, in this understanding of the psalm. And that one thing is to look to the one, the righteous one, who has done for us what we ourselves could not do. As Romans 8.3 says, for what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. And how did he do it? The rest of that verse, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Amen? Brothers and sisters, did I not tell you the Psalms points us to Christ? How can Christians be confident in crisis? Christians can be confident in Christ alone. Although David did not know him by name, David knew him confidently by faith. David knew him most assuredly by the covenant God made with him, that the coming Christ, the coming Messiah, is his confidence in crisis. As David declared from the first words of this psalm, in the Lord I take refuge. He asks, how can you say to my soul, flee? How can you say to my soul, what can the righteous do? Because that is a curious question, isn't it? And the answer would be a miserable, lamentable one and a hopeless one if the righteous person is a reference to David himself or any other upright person in this world. But the singular, masculine, absolute adjective form of the word righteous points us to the only one who is the righteous one. Hallelujah. 
In these verses, David is responding to the fearful advice of his counselors with a faithful answer, and that answer is Jesus the Christ. Amen? Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you will ever hear, that what the law could not do, weakened by the flesh, God did. And how did he do it? By sending his own son, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died. Jesus became our substitute. He took our place on the cross, and by his death, he received the punishment, the wrath of God reserved for us. He suffered the consequences of our sin. We would have suffered in eternal hell. But you know the good news, don't you? The third day, Jesus Christ rose again from death, which meant that God accepted his sacrifice, which meant that Jesus conquered sin, Satan, and death once and for all. And he invites anyone and everyone to repent of their sins, believe that Jesus rose again from death, and to trust him with their whole life, to receive the gift of faith and new life today, this moment, and await with assurance and hope of the eternal life to come when Jesus Christ returns. So if you are here and you are not a Christian, or if you are not sure that you are, and we're so thankful that you are here, there's no better place you can be on the Lord's day than under God's word with God's people. And so let me ask you a very important question. Who or what is your confident refuge when crisis come your way? I want to urge you, I want to plead with you, let today be the day you repent of your sins. Believe that Jesus died and rose again for your sake. Trust in him with your whole life today and forevermore. Amen? If you want to know more about how you can follow Jesus, I'll be standing at the back door at the close of service. Pastor Jeremy will be standing at the outside door. Eric Kim, our service leader, will be standing at this door. We'll be happy to talk to you to tell you more about how you can follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, when the foundations are destroyed, do you have confident resolve as David did? In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to me, flee? How can you say to me, what can I do? My confidence is in Christ alone. In Him I take refuge. As Christians, what privilege we have that our confidence is not in ourselves, but in the righteous one. Amen? But there's more. There's more truth that leads us to confidence in crisis, which leads us to our next point. How can Christians be confident in crisis? Point number two, the Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness from verses four through seven. In verses four through seven, David teaches us why he is confident in the Lord who is our refuge and why we can also be confident in him because Jesus is our righteousness. Four subpoints to explain what this means. And I kid you not, I came up with this outline of these subpoints first. And then when I consulted one of the commentaries by James Johnston in the preaching, the word commentary set, he had the exact same outline. So hopefully that means these subpoints are clearly from the text and obvious from these verses. Subpoint number one He reigns. We can be confident in crisis because the Lord Jesus Christ reigns. Look at verse four The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Brothers and sisters, in times of crisis, Christians can be confident. We can trust that Christ is our certain refuge because he, Jesus Christ, is in his holy temple. Hallelujah. Matthew 25, 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Revelation 5, 13, our scripture reading that our sister Elaine read says, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Now the reality of this truth that Christ sits on the eternal throne of heaven, that he sovereignly reigns over all now in the present and for all eternity is only good news if this eternal king's favor is on you. Isn't that right? Because look at the next phrase. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. Now that's a scary thought, that the king and the God of this universe is looking at you right now. And there's no escape from his gaze. And that's what these phrases simply means. The Lord keeps a close eye on every human being. But did you notice something very interesting? Just like we've been studying in 1 Peter, it says the Lord tests the children of man. And how did we learn that God tests his people? Through suffering, through persecution, through crisis, the Lord tests the children of man. So, brothers and sisters, you can be sure that the Lord reigns over all, even through your sufferings, even through the hardships of life that you face or are facing right now in the present, even when it seems the foundations of this society and of your life seems to be crumbling, when it seems your foundations have no hold, know and trust and believe that Jesus is on the throne, that he holds the universe in his hand. God is not a distant, detached, careless God. He reigns as the good, benevolent, and merciful king. Subpoint number two, not only that he reigns, but he also watches. Subpoint number two, he watches. And although he reigns over all, the Lord our God, the God of the Bible, has a particular eye toward his elect. But again, if we did not have the favor of this eternal king, this would be a very fearful thing. But again, through his righteous one, his gaze is on us. Look at verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Again, for anyone who is thinking, oh yeah, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked, let me remind you, the righteous one, again, singular, masculine, absolute form in its grammar, is not a reference to you. It's not a reference to me. In fact, it's the, just the opposite. You are the wicked one. You are the one who loves violence. That is a description of you and me. Brothers and sisters, the tragedy of the recent mass shootings are heartbreaking, gut-wrenching. But anyone wonder, in a society and a culture that is so infiltrated, so obsessed with overt sex and violence, that champions pride for an entire month, with an entertainment industry that makes multi-billions of dollars selling us sex and violence, and our society is surprised and shocked when such violence continues to manifest among us. Please hear me humbly and lovingly and gently. We are the wicked ones. We are the ones who love violence. And if this does not come through to your head today, 
you are gravely mistaken. You are not the righteous one. We are the wicked ones. We are the ones who love violence. And apart from Christ and his imputed righteousness toward his chosen elect, the promise of this verse is not ours. But for those who are his brothers and sisters in Christ, he sees, he watches, he tests us to look to him in times of trouble. And that is a comforting, confident, arising promise. Amen? Subpoint number three, he judges. And brothers and sisters, in the face of crisis, Christians can be confident that our Lord is our righteousness because he judges. Look at verse six. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Brothers and sisters, by God's mercy, our punishment has been spared. The wrath of God that was reserved for us has been spared by Jesus Christ's substitution. But let me be clear, we're not going to be free to just live whatever the way that we feel like it in this life. If you are genuinely born again, we will live our lives to love Him and serve Him and serve His people and accomplish His purposes in our lives. But aren't you so glad Aren't you so satisfied and hopeful knowing that he will judge the wicked? That the guilty will not go unpunished? Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. They will not get away. They will suffer the wrath of God as they deserve. Hallelujah. We can rest tonight knowing that the evil ones seem to be winning on this side of the earth before the mighty hand of God. They will be crushed for all eternity. They will be judged. Subpoint number four, more hope, more confidence in why we should endure and persevere in the midst of crisis and not flee and not run away and not escape, but stand firm. Subpoint number four, he rewards. Look at verse seven. For the Lord is righteous. Righteous is the very nature of who God is. Amen? Righteousness is the very nature of who God is. It also says that he loves righteous deeds. And what this means is the righteous one, Jesus Christ, loves righteousness. So all of us who are covered by the imputed righteousness of Christ, we can also experience his love, his fellowship, his blessings, his, his benefits today and now. And that's why the Bible says you will know them, the people of God, by their love for one another. Again, a reminder for us, we are not the righteous one. He is the righteous one. And by his mercy, by his grace, by his infinite grace and love, look at this last phrase, the final promise, the upright shall behold his face. Brothers and sisters, when the foundations of this society and our lives crumble and are wasted, and it seems like Christianity is losing momentum or whatever you think that is happening to the people of faith, rest assured, Jesus Christ sits in his holy temple. Hallelujah. He is our refuge in times of crisis. He is our righteousness when we are weak and frail and lost and hopeless. We are found in him and him alone. And we shall, we will, if you cling to him and look to him, we shall behold 
his face. Amen? The Lord's Supper that we are about to participate in is another reminder of his body broken for us and his blood shed for us so that all of our sins, sins of the past, present, and future was washed. It is a reminder of our unity in him. It is our reminder that his righteousness is ours. So let's come before the Lord, not in pride, but in humility. He is our refuge. He is our righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are our confidence in times of trouble. Father, when we look to the world, it can be so hopeless. It can be so discouraging and disappointing. And oftentimes we can doubt when it seems like the world is raging with their agenda. But Father, may the faithful ones, the righteous ones who are in the righteous one's grace and mercy cling and look and hope in the only righteous one. Father, may New Covenant Baptist Church continue to persevere in the faith by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.